Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Thank you, Stan. Well, good morning, Imago Day. Uh, my name is Josh Butler. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, we are looking at hope. Is the Christmas story still relevant today? Can it still bring hope to our world? If you think about some of the dominant headlines from this year of 2016, uh, we had Trump versus Clinton. We had Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter. We had the war in Syria and the growing refugee, refugee crisis, Orlando and terrorist shootings. We had the urban-rural divide and increasing poverty. And in the midst of this context, uh, studies show that Americans are more pessimistic than ever about the future. Our hope is down. Right? Indeed, we can see this in one of the dominant genres of kind of movies and literature over the last decade has been that of the post-apocalyptic, right? The sense of envisioning the uh, kind of aftermath of our society's imminent uh, demise. Well, when that happens, when there's a sense that our societal hope seems to be gone, we can tend to retreat and turn inward. We tend to focus on our lives, our family, our tribe. How can we kind of get what we can and protect what we have? And often maybe then we will look to other persons as the people in whom we are going to find hope. So we can be like that deserted islander who sees that person coming and thinks this is going to be the one who rescues me, this particular friendship, this romantic relationship. And then they come and we get to know them better and we realize that they were just as lost as we were. <laughs> and looking for the same kinds of things in us. And so when our societal hope has exploded, when our personal hope has imploded, then the Christmas story comes along and it can sound like an irrelevant fairy tale. Like there's a baby in a manger and some wise men and kumbaya, but that was back then and it can't speak to the depths of our conditions now. That was in the good old days, but they couldn't understand the weight of our condition. Or could they? And one of the things I love about the Christmas story is that it is not just kind of these abstract, timeless truths. It is the story of God breaking into the history of our world. It is God taking the fullness of our condition upon himself in Christ in order to deliver us. That Jesus takes on our flesh, our soil, our earth and bone. And he unites himself with it. He comes under all of our kind of political drama and societal chaos and all the things that seem to be tearing our world apart, and he shows up as hope that God has come to be with us and ultimately to deliver us. Christmas is hope. It is hope because God has taken the full weight of our condition upon himself in Christ it is hope because it's a good news that's big enough for our personal lives and big enough for our society. It's hope for our families and hope for the world. So this morning we want to look at Matthew 2. And it's the story of uh, the wise men who come to visit Jesus after he's born. Now this is probably a familiar story uh, to us. 
But I want to actually look today at some of the Old Testament passages. Matthew is quoting a ton of kind of Old Testament allusions and backdrops and, and quotations here. And so we want to see how Matthew uses this to depict Christ as our deliverance and our hope. So the story opens with the uh, three wise men. It's often thought of as these three wise men, but it doesn't actually say that. It just says these magi who come to Jerusalem seeking out Christ the King. And we often think that it's three because they, they bring these three gifts, but scholars say they actually believe it was a wide throng. It was many people. It was these kings coming as representatives from the nations coming to bow down and worship Christ as King. And as this multitude comes, yes, they bring Three gifts, right? They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what's going on with those? Well, gold was something that you would give a king. Right? Frankincense was this incense that the priests would use in the temple before God. And myrrh was this like oil, an anointing oil that the prophets would use to anoint people. So there's a sense that Christ comes and they recognize him as prophet, priest, and king. All three of the major offices of the Old Testament. Only you go back into the Old Testament, and usually someone would just be one of those. So you might have uh, the king, David, or the high priest, Aaron, or the prophet, Elijah. But they come and they recognize Christ fulfills all three offices. He is the king who will bring God's rule to bear upon the earth. He is the priest who mediates God's presence to humanity. He is the prophet who will proclaim God's truth to the nations. And the backdrop to this scene is Isaiah 60. Uh, it's kind of a famous passage, a passage of hope in the Old Testament where uh, we're told, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Just like that star arising that the wise men kind of follow to Jesus. It says, see, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. It recognizes our context. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. And as these kings of the nations will come, it says they will come bearing gold and frankincense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. In Christ's arrival, he is the hope of the nations, the desire of creation. And these representatives come, and they, they have not lost hope. They have been looking out on the horizon, looking for their redemption to come. And they, they come, these outsiders streaming to the land to encounter Christ. And yet there are some insiders who are much closer to the action, closer to where Christ is born, there are some who, even though they're more proximate to it, they feel threatened by it. It's a threat to them. And so we see that King Herod, we read, was disturbed. Jesus was a threat to Herod. Well, why is that? Well, you can imagine if you're king, if you're the ruler, and you've got like all these kings from the nations come, and they're going, hey, where's the king of the Jews? We want to worship him. And Herod's like, uh, where's the king of the Jews? Wait a second. I'm the king of the Jews, Right? So this is that there's a new king in town and it upsets the current king. Right? It poses a threat the current king. Herod recognizes there is a conflict that Jesus brings with the present order of things. And it's an order that currently benefits him. 
And so he finds himself threatened. And he asks, well, where is this king to be born? Where is he supposed to be born? And uh, he has quoted to him Micah 5. And Micah is this Old Testament passage that says, um, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, and you, you kind of hear that, and I, for us we think, go oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? Like, oh, it's kind of this cute little town, this Bethlehem town. Uh, but it's more than kind of a cutesy little song, right? This passage is packed with hope because he goes on to say, out of you, Bethlehem, out of you will come for me, God is saying, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Herod is right to be threatened because God's king is in town and a revolution is afoot. Goes on to say, he will stand and shepherd his flock and then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And it becomes a passage of deliverance saying that he, this king, will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. Christ has come And Herod feels threatened, and Herod responds, giving the order that all of the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years old are to be murdered, to be killed. And Herod was kind of known for this. In the ancient world, he was famous for being sort of this paranoid madman who would uh, kind of kill anyone who he thought was a threat to his throne. And so he had killed a number of family members, one of his wives and a number of his kids. And he had put to death a, number, a large number of Jewish leaders who he saw as a threat to his power. So here he commands the killing of the innocents, right? These young children. And, I think, and Joseph and Mary are warned, and so they take baby Jesus and they go into Egypt. And when we're hearing this, I think Matthew wants kind of our alarm bells to be ringing off and going, man, doesn't this sound familiar? Like, there's this tyrant, and he is seeking to uh, kill these Israelite babies because he feels threatened. And God rescues and delivers one of these babies into Egypt, who is going to become their deliverer. This is the story, this is the story of the Exodus, one of the most famous stories of Israel's history. There's a sense that there is a new Exodus afoot. Jesus has come as their deliverer. And so uh, he quotes, I, Matthew quotes Hosea 11 here to talk about this. And this passage, God is saying to his people, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. Matthew's going, Jesus shows up and this scripture is fulfilled. This scripture was one about way back when, when God came to deliver Israel. But there's a sense that now it's fulfilled because Jesus has entered into his people's captivity with them. He has entered into the fullness of their condition in order to be their deliverer. A new exodus is afoot. Only when Jesus, uh, kind of baby Jesus, gets, comes out of Egypt and comes back to his hometown eventually... He leaves one Egypt and he comes back to a new Egypt. There's a sense that Rome is the new Egypt. Caesar is the new Pharaoh. The promised land is under occupation. The Roman Empire is a new Egypt. Murdering the children of God to protect its power. And so Matthew ends with a quote from Jeremiah 31, a passage of lament. This is what the Lord says in Jeremiah 31. It says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, 
Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What's going on here? Well, Rachel was kind of like the great, 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 great grandmother of Israel, right? She was married to Jacob, who then became Israel, and so uh, many of the tribes kind of came from her line. So uh, Rachel is like their great, great grandma for the people, right? And she was buried near Ramah. And Ramah was this place where when Israel was taken captive by Babylon and they came and invaded, they assembled all the captives at Ramah as they prepared them for deportation. You can almost think of, uh, it's like the, one of the train stops, right, where the Jews in Nazi Germany were, were gathered and heard it before they were carried off and deported into captivity. So the, there's this picture here where Rachel is like the great-great-grandmother in her grave and she's weeping as she sees her children carried off into captivity. Only if you know Jeremiah 31, you know that the passage doesn't stop there. And Matthew knows the passage doesn't stop there. It is ultimately a passage of hope. Immediately after this, God tells Rachel, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. Your children will return to their own land. So God's going, get ready. I'm going to bring them back from captivity. And when he does, is once again, they will say, The Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. Jesus comes to end the captivity. Jesus arrives as deliverance and hope. So what, what is going on here? I think as Matthew is kind of quoting these passages, what all of them have to do with is deliverance from captivity. So the first one is about deliverance from Assyria. The uh, second one, Hosea 11, is about deliverance from Egypt. The third one, Jeremiah, it's about deliverance from Babylon. It's drawing all these resonances. These were kind of the major powerhouses that oppressed the people of God. And he is saying, Jesus has entered and arrived and come underneath our condition to be with us and ultimately to deliver us. And he opens this passage with this, the, the magi, the wise men, the kings coming to recognize and worship Christ as king as the hope of the nations who is now on the scene, who has arrived. Because here's the thing about deliverance from captivity, right? If you're going to deliver someone from captivity, you first have to go behind enemy lines to be with them. Like if you think of a Saving Private Ryan, kind of a classic movie, right? And Private Ryan is trapped. He's behind enemy lines. He's a captive. He is a POW. And so Tom Hanks and his crew, uh, the first thing they have to do is get behind enemy lines and go seek him out and find him to join him and be in union with him there, right? But their end game is not just to stay with him and hang out in the muck and the mud, right? Their end game is once they've got him is to deliver and pull him out from captivity, Similarly, in the incarnation, at the birth of Christ, Jesus is going behind enemy lines. He is entering the war zone of our world. He is coming underneath kind of the umbrella of sin that, that our world is under in order to join us, join with us in union there. But his endgame is not just to sit around and commiserate with us. His ultimate endgame is to deliver us, to bring us out that we could participate in his 
victory. So the point I, I kind of want us to focus on this morning is to go, in order to do this, in order to deliver us, Jesus becomes a refugee. Jesus becomes a refugee. Jesus, what, what is a refugee? A refugee is someone who was displaced by war or violent conflict. And Jesus allows himself to be displaced, not only coming from heaven to the war zone of earth, but even then once he gets here from the get-go, as a very baby, he, he, must be, he must flee. His family must take him under political persecution. They must flee their homeland and go into Egypt. What does this mean for us today? Well, I like this quote by Ray Bakke, who uh, puts it this way. He says, as our cities swell with immigrants and migrants, I'm reminded that Jesus was born in a borrowed barn in Asia and became an African refugee in Egypt. So the Christmas story is about an international migrant. Furthermore, a whole village of baby boys died for Jesus before he had the opportunity to die for them on the cross. Surely this Jesus understands the pain of children who die for the sins of adults in our cities. Jesus became a refugee. The Christmas story is Christ coming to be with us in our condition, ultimately as our hope and our deliverer. Well, one of the ways that we have sought to live into this story, to let the reality of the Christmas story and the gospel shape us as a people, is to welcome refugees who are coming here to Portland. Recognizing that Jesus invites us to join refugees and what better way to celebrate uh, the Christmas story than to welcome and embrace those who are fleeing persecution and coming here to our home. And so uh, we, have, we, have, we have sought to be a part of this as a way of embracing with the love of Christ the vulnerable who come here to Portland. We are currently facing the worst refugee crisis since World War II. Over 60 million people around the world have been displaced, and over half of whom are children. And many are coming to Portland, and so our desire has been to embrace them with the love of Christ and to help welcome them and craft a new life here and turn kind of this house into a home. And one of the ways we've been doing that is we are part of the Refugee Care Collective. This is a collective of churches uh, across Portland that are striving to work together to kind of learn best practices and go, how can we as the body of Christ do this well? Welcoming and embracing refugees. The, the motto, as you can kind of see here on the website, is seeing refugees successfully transition from their crisis-centric reality to a thriving new life in Portland. I have to say, this year you guys have... Man, just blown it out of the water. Done. Uh, we've been able to do just some phenomenal stuff. You guys have organized and rallied 25 teams. Teams of, uh, we started kind of last Advent, and over this year, you guys have uh, mobilized like 25 teams of four to eight people who have welcomed and embraced and kind of walked with the family for those first six to eight months as they're kind of learning how to uh, live and thrive here in Portland. You guys pulled together over 200 restart kits. Uh, these kits were uh, owning like one room in a home, so maybe the bathroom or the kitchen or the uh, living room, and, and going, how can we prepare the decorations that we could help them turn their house into a home? 
Some of you have been involved beginning to teach English as a second language, ESL classes. Adam Cole and his group from Outgrowing Hunger have been involved helping start community gardens in uh, some of the apartment complexes that are predominantly with refugees. Some of you have been helping to dream of how can we help find and create jobs. And together with the other churches, we were able to collectively rally a $50,000 city gift uh, that went to Lutheran Community Services. They are the top resettlement agency in town because they do the most, uh, had over 60% of, of resettlement here in Portland. So we were able to help support them uh, with a, an emergency care fund for some of the most pressing issues that currently families were facing. And, And that's exciting, and I got some more good news that uh, we actually have uh, Salah Ansari and Stephanie Block from, Refu- from uh, Lutheran Community Services here with us this morning. So would you join me in giving them a warm Imago welcome. All right, well, thank you guys so much for being here with us, and thanks for the amazing work you do. Uh, so Stephanie and Salah, Stephanie, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we kind of see the numbers up here, but can you maybe uh, talk a little bit about what, what's kind of the impact that's had? Maybe put a little uh, more flesh on the bones, so to speak. What, what, what does that represent? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks to Mago Day, because uh, through your participation in Refugee Care Collective, you've probably been the single biggest blessing to our program in the last year. It's been amazing, the support you've provided. And those are the ways that you've done it. And um, we'll start with the mentor teams. The mentor teams, as Josh suggested, are assigned to a specific refugee family. And the agency, the resettlement agency, the services that we provide are the ones that are funded by the federal government, and they're very time limited, and they're very much skewed towards new arrivals because we have new arrivals coming all the time. And so what we try to do is set the refugee families up as best as they can, as quickly as possible, so that they can be successful. But obviously, these families are very challenged, and it takes a lot, and it takes a lot of attention and a lot of effort. So the mentor teams, they work side by side with us, and they help us do what we need to get done with the refugee program itself, providing the refugees access to services and that kind of thing. But they also then are able to sort of stick with them beyond the time that we can work with them to help them assimilate in a more meaningful way. So companionship, friendship, um, showing them where a park is, getting ice cream, you know, all those kinds of things that make the family enjoy being here because it's such an overwhelming transition. So that's really key. Um, The restart kits are super important because we as an agency are required to find housing for refugee families when they arrive and then we outfit the housing as best as we can with donated stuff. And the donated, we were always struggling to help families get set up as quickly as possible with anymore. Now the families are provided with everything they need to set their house up right away, families. And it really relieves a lot of stress because they know they have what they need to cook. That is a huge stress reliever and very, very important. So those have been ongoing. And that is primarily in housing. Um, Refugees, they suffer to this housing market and they can't afford their rent from the time that they get here that 
feel. So the problem too is with this housing market that the cash is due in $500 less than what their rent is. And we strive to find the most with assimilation and that early transition. So what we use the gift for and specifically is for rent subsidies. So we are able early on to help home and that relieves a lot of stress and keeps, and keeps their home. So truly with that homes, while they're trying to rebuild their home. So um, truly. Mm. Yeah, I could imagine uh, some of us might be under the impression that, oh, it's like this big agency with health welfare. I think we've just seen again and again where uh, the agency itself is often you know, underfunded job with a shoestring. And so being able to uh, rally around to provide some of the relational, you know, how to use the bank or the public transport or the grocery store, um, those $1,000 city gift, you, I mean, we've just seen Portland rent going ah. through <laughs> the roof. It's you're still, you know, living off of what would have been expected years ago. Um, and spend the first few months learning English and getting acclimated. I think you said it usually takes about six to eight months for folks. Um, we do have a partner organization that provides job coaching and employment assistance. Overwhelming thing, you know, a lot of the refugee families, they don't speak English. Many of them have languished in refugee camps. We find them jobs, but that's another challenge. And then if they're stressed out about their, all of that's so much harder. So the fact that we have those things in place with the community support. That, 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 that $50,000 over doubled all the year-end giving last year. Um, uh, otherwise, can we say welcome and Absolutely. embrace and, and be here for you? Well, uh, Salah, you as well, so you're from Afghanistan and just your own experience. And I'm curious, now as you're working with families on things that are going through the life of a family as they come here for the first, well, first time. First of all, thank you so much. Uh, we participated in the first service. And why um, the desperation in the need that refugees do have? Mm -hmm. And that's who we are as a nation here, immigrants and refugees. That refugees come here and rely on resources of years back. I left Afghanistan in 1978, and I found myself to leave the country and come, well, believe it or not, my entire family, my mother's siblings, and my, I was able to bring to Portland. Um, and I remember, and my youngest brother, who was a teenager at the time, said, what's going to happen to us? And this is something that I have experienced for 30-some years now, uh, that I welcome prayers, and I see the, the, the hope. I mean, what happens to these individuals? Those individuals will never face that you have helped them, whether it's through this of 20 financial assistance and this housing because it's a, it's a loss of your homes. Things change immediately, overnight. For me, a coup took place that unraveled our lives and I've lost many other refugees. But I see that the hope and she was resettled now in 30s. She still remembers those early days that people came and helped her and lived there for several years. So that's, that's, I mean, it is a very bewildering experience and they need this support early on. And I appreciate so much your generosity of heart and being with us. Mm. We have resettled close to 38,000 refugees in the Northwest. We could have not done that alone. And people like yourself that have been involved with us so thank you for inviting us, and yeah. thank you for your time. <laughs>
Well, thank you. And I, I know in our culture today, there has been some uh, cultural debate. I think concerns are going, well, is this safe? Are we kind of empowering terrorism or things of that nature? And just to address that really quick, going, man, if, if you are a terrorist and you decide to enter through our refugee process, which is like 18 to 24 month process with biometric scanning and background checks and all that deal, like you are the stupidest terrorist on the face of the planet. <laughs> like, <laughs> The reality is you could walk to any of 50 unmanned checkpoints on the border and, and walk across, right? So uh, the reality, I was reading a stat a few, uh, week, uh, few weeks ago about how there have been since the 70s millions and millions of refugees who've gone through the refugee process come into the country, and there has not been a single act of terrorism committed by them. And so uh, there's really, uh, and there is a legitimate place for kind of a, a national political conversation for the government and kind of going how many do we let them or not. But what's non-negotiable is that for us as the church, that those who are here, we're not only invited by Christ, we're called by Christ to embrace as his people and to welcome and to help them turn this place into a home. Right? And so I want to thank you guys for the amazing work you do. I want to recognize that um, it's, it's hard, again, that there is, uh, you guys have been so patient as you can imagine trying to get multiple churches working with an agency and a third party and just figuring out all of the uh, logistics. There can, be a, there can be a bumpy road, and you guys have been so patient in helping to learn how to navigate that well. Um, and uh, so we're just so grateful for the work that you guys are doing and the chance to be in it together for our city. So yep. thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So this year for uh, Advent Conspiracy, 75% uh, of our offering is going to go globally to clean water, like we talked about. The other 25% will go locally to refugee care and to our missional grants, kind of helping start up new ministries this year. So that's going to be December 18th where we receive that offering. All right, well, and they're going to be up here afterwards. If you want to come up and ask questions, talk to them. They'll be here for a while afterwards. <clears throat> okay, so we have seen that Jesus became a refugee, and we have seen that Jesus invites us to join refugees. The final thing I want to look at here is uh, briefly how Jesus speaks to us as refugees. And I know that can sound a little weird. Like, I, I don't necessarily want to equate, like pretend that uh, what we're, we're going through is quite the same, uh, is equivalent to uh, some of the disaster and the trauma uh, that some of these families are going through. But there's this reality that we are far from home, that God's kingdom has not yet fully come on earth as it is in heaven. And for many of us, in the weight of our kind of fallen world, we can feel displaced. I love uh, 1 Peter. He speaks uh, of us as followers of Jesus as being foreigners and exiles in kind of the war zone of our world. He talks about the church as being uh, she who is in Babylon, in captivity. And so there's this recognition that the world is not yet the way it's supposed to be. That Christ has come in union with us, and yet we are still waiting the fullness of our deliverance. So I want to ask this morning, as we kind of close up here, as we land the plane, where do you feel displaced? Where do you find yourself feeling displaced, seeking refuge from kind of the fallout of our world? It could be that uh, broken relationship that has torn your soul open. Or it could be that financial weight that feels so overwhelming at times it keeps you up at night. Or it could be that history of abuse that you're processing and working through that sometimes just feels so significant like you're going to drown. 
Well, Jesus has entered in order to be close to you, to be with you, to be bound in union with you. Good news is that Christ is here this morning by the power and presence of his spirit. And so there are going to be people at the doors for prayer. And I want to invite you to come and take those areas where you feel displaced and bring them before Christ. That we can bring the fullness of who we are before the fullness of who he is. To receive all of him who has come for us. Because in Christ, hope has come. So what is that area where you feel like you're running for refuge and need hope far from home? Hope has come. Like Jesus has not only uh, became a refugee, Jesus has become our refuge. He has become our refuge. The same Jesus who left heaven to come to earth, who fled from Herod, who endured suffering and scorn and shame and was rejected by his own, He has come to you today, and he is present by the power of his Spirit. He invites us to bring all of who we are before him. He's taken on the full weight of your condition in order to be in union with you and ultimately to bring you home. So, uh, and his goal as he comes is to be in union with us, but it's not, again, just kind of sit in the muck with us, right? His goal ultimately is to deliver us. And so, likewise, this morning, I want to ask, is, where is that area where Christ might be calling you to follow him today? Will we submit to him as king, like the wise men, the kings that kind of came before him? Or will we resist him like Herod the fool, who tried to protect his petty little empire from the inbreaking kingdom of God? Let's bring the fullness of who we are before him today. Bring before him those areas where we feel displaced. And let's commit and submit our lives to following him as king. To not only receive the hope that he brings, but to be agents of his hope to his world. So as we come to the table this morning, we come to Christ, our hope. He who became a refugee, who entered the war zone of our world and allowed himself to be broken and crushed by it in order to be in union with us. Come and receive him today, and let's come in a posture of worship, bringing all of our gifts, our talents, our prayers, uh, all that we are in worship, and recognize him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, the hope of the world. We come to you this morning bringing those areas where we feel displaced, God, where the war zone of our world has left its fallout in our lives. And we come to submit to you as the King of Kings to bring our gifts, our talents, our treasures, the fullness of who we are to you in order to receive the fullness of who you are for us. And God, we want to not only experience hope in you, but to be your agents of hope for our society to care for refugees and others, God, and to embody your presence, your embrace, your welcoming hospitality for the world. Form us for your kingdom, Jesus. You are our hope. You are our deliverer. You are our king. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website, at www.amagodaycommunity.com Thanks a lot for listening.